0: I was going to do at least one dumb thing this morning. How is everyone feeling? Man, that was gorgeous. That gave me chills listening to you guys back there. Can we just give it up for the worship band again, please? Listen, uh, it's, uh, it's something else to just look out and to see people singing together. Something that I've missed over the past just year and a year and a half, and we've been able to do that consistently for quite a while now. You know, we are now in our, um, we're in our sixth week of this Faith in Doubt series. Six weeks. If yeah, there's one thing that I have loved is how necessary it is to know about apologetics. Getting my master's in it right now, I'm finding out more and more new things every single day. I really am. But what I'm realizing is that Christianity, the Christian God, is the one that has had the most evidence to being true. We can't say without, with 100% certainty that the Christian God is there, but all of the evidence stacks that it is. All of it and no other religion can say that. No other religion can say that they serve a God who is risen. No other religion can say that they serve a, a, a God who came back from the dead because there's a tomb for all of theirs. Can we pray? Father, thank you for this morning, for putting somebody imperfect like me and even all the people on the band, on staff of this church. God, you continuously put people like us, like people out here, in charge of your word, and God, that's crazy, that's crazy to me, is that you entrust us with the most important bit of evidence for you, and that's your word. So God, the moment that we feel like we're not worthy, the moment we feel like we're not good enough, the moment that we feel like we can't do this or we can't do that, God, let us realize that our strength is not on us, it is from you and you alone. God, bring us to our knees in humility and allow us to know you and more every single day. In your name I pray. Amen. I want to start out this way. Whenever I was in middle school, I decided something. I'm just going to play football for the first time. And I don't mean like sixth grade. I mean eighth grade. You see, when I went uh, to, to Bluefield Middle School for my first two years, I was overweight and I got made fun of a lot. Okay? I got pictures. Now, I ended up needing to transfer because I got made fun of so much. It's a huge long story, I'm still getting over it now. But I ended up leaving Bluefoot, I went to another school and I decided I'm gonna play football. Now, as you know, whenever a young boy in middle school is getting older, he loses weight, right? So I was like, oh, I'm gonna play football, I'll be a lineman. But then I started to lose that weight and so then they started putting me out at receiver, which I actually found out I was actually okay, if as much as an eighth grader in small southern West Virginia can be. But whenever you are a kid, you have moments that you dream of. Am I right? Typically, if you play sports, it's shooting the game-winning shot. It's catching the game-winning uh, touchdown. It's kicking the game-winning field goal. Maybe it's uh, hitting the last shot. I don't know. But for me, I got to live my dream in eighth grade. It was the last game of the season, and I was playing wide receiver. We were down by five points, and we had one more play to run, and we were pretty far back from the end zone, so we had one play call, and it was called throw it up. Toss it up as high as you can. And what was even funnier was I was the only one who was playing receiver, so I was it. If I catch it, we win, if I don't, we lose. So I line up, again, my dream is coming true. I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. This is what's going to dictate the rest of my life forever. It's this single moment. So I line up and I'm at Princeton um, High School Stadium. It's at Honeycutt, i get out there and the defense knows exactly what's going to happen. Why? we have one play, score. And what makes it even funnier is I was the only one who was going to be running a route because our line couldn't block. So I was it. So it was like one on five. I was not looking good in this scenario. But I take off running. My best friend Josh at the time, he was like the massive guy at school. So he, he wasn't even our quarterback. He was the running back, but he's the only one who could throw the ball because you know how real eighth grade football is. So he was the only one who could throw the ball really, really far. So I take off running. I look back and I realize something. I'm by myself. So I take off and then I see the other people being like, oh no, he's by himself. So I run back. The other guys start backing up. And I remember jumping the highest, like in my, in my little brain, my middle school brain, I thought I jumped as high as Iron Man could fly. So I get up there, the ball hits my hands, and then it hits my face mask, and then they intercept it and we lose the game. Yeah, your reaction was me for the next three years. I remember being like that moment of, we just lost because I'm no good. I walked off the field. Obviously, I was having a really good moment in my life, right? Obviously, I'm kidding. But one of my friends who was in the band walks over and she goes, I thought you were going to catch it. I said, me too. I thought I was going to catch it too. She goes, yeah, and it hit you in the face. It's the second time that's happened to me in my life. But my point is, is that we have moments in our lives where we just have our dreams absolutely devastated, absolutely devastated. Now, obviously, we can equate that to something in middle school or maybe even high school, or elementary school. But whenever we get to be an adult, it seems like those dreams hurt just a little bit more. Maybe we dream of, that, of our wedding being the best day ever, and it turned out it wasn't. Maybe the marriage wasn't. Maybe it, it, it's as simple as, as, as waking up and realizing we're going to have a really good day today because I'm supposed to get the promotion, and then that doesn't happen. Maybe you're really excited for one of your kids to get to do something, and then their dreams get devastated, and now you're devastated as well. Every single day, we have the opportunity for something to get devastated in our life. And we can't prevent that. You see, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about doubt. How do we deal with doubt as Christians? How do we struggle with questions and with doubt of God? Does that make us a bad Christian? Absolutely not. But one set of doubts that we talked about were those of the mind. These are the ones that we have intuitively inside of our heads that if we just search for the evidence, if we look for answers, we typically can find them. They're typically there. Number two is that that if we have the, the doubt of our will meaning we just need to make the decision to follow God even whenever we don't know the answers, even whenever we don't have like the direct like beeline to where the the end is. It's like, but I trust God is. I trust that God's there and I trust that he knows what's better for me. But today might be the hardest one. It's the doubts of our heart. The doubts of our heart. You see, doubts of our heart are the things called feelings and emotions. Feelings and emotions. And these are also two of the most deceitful things in your life. Feelings are meant to be good. Feelings can be good. Emotions are obviously good. But what happens when they're not good feelings? What happens then? You see, typically we have moments in our life, again, like with those devastated dreams, when it feels like the world around us is crumbling and we have nothing. Where it seems like, I want to believe that God's good, but it really doesn't feel that way right now. And I'm here to say that just because we feel a way doesn't make it real. Just because our feelings will tell us one thing, that doesn't make it reality. But yet whenever those, those, uh, those doubts inside of our heart tell us, no, 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 it's real, what do we do about it? You see, Maya Angelou said this, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Maybe you've heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my, but words will never hurt me. And it's, I mean, can we just talk about how big of a lie that is? Again, I left middle school because of the words. I could can, I can tell you their names. I could show you their Facebook profiles, and I want to make fun of them every single day. We hold on to that kind of stuff. Even as silly as it was, we hold on tight to what made us feel a negative way. And what's even more weird is that we can remember the things that made us feel bad compared to what made us feel good. And isn't that weird, how, that, how our minds react to things? Is that we can be lifted up and told all the good stuff, but the moment that one person comes in that same day and says one negative thing, the good stuff that made us feel happy earlier, it's not the focus anymore. Feelings are real, and they hurt, and that's what makes it difficult. But here's another problem. Our feelings don't always equate and equal up to God's truth. Let me say it again. Our feelings and our emotions don't always equal God's truth. There are so many times in scripture where you read about things and you're like, well, that doesn't make me feel very happy. How do you tell somebody that God turned someone into a pillar of salt? How do you talk to people and say, well, yeah, well, he he may have possessed some pigs and they may have jumped off a huge uh, cliff and died. Where's the theological goodness in that? Unbelievable. There is some. But my point is, is that there's going to be things in Scripture that make you uncomfortable, that don't make you feel good, that make you almost sad and be like, well, where is this goodness of God? For instance, the problem of evil. There is thousands, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of articles and books and and, and different philosophies and critiques over the problem of evil. And it's the idea, why why is evil in the world? Who created it? Why is it here? Why do we need it? What's it for? And I'm here to tell you, number one, and first and foremost, no answer is going to fully satisfy you. Because the reality is, is evil exists. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have his hand in it and to control it and to make it good. And that's weird and that makes me uncomfortable to say, but that's the reality, that's the truth. So when we hear about the problem of evil, whenever we hear about people not wanting to come to Jesus because I can't understand why a good God would do this or why a good God would do that, there's not going to be an answer that makes me feel good at any point in this. But does that mean that God's not good? Absolutely not, that means he's great. means he's in charge. And even whenever I don't understand, no matter what my feelings and emotions tell me, God is good, even when I don't get it. So feelings will lie to you. Emotions will lie to you. So how do we deal with that in Scripture? Well, as Christians, we're meant to preach the truth, to talk to people about what Scripture says. In Ephesians, we read that we need to teach the truth in love. And again, I think that's a whole different sermon series on how we do that properly. But our goal is not to shy away from the thing. A couple weeks ago, I talked about how whenever we hear the word fear God, we try to butter it up and and put like icing on it and be like, no, 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 he doesn't mean literally fear God. But when you look at all the instances of Scripture where it's about fearing God, well, they're pretty terrified of what's going to happen to them. It means real fear. It means genuine fear. It means a thing called holy fear, reverence, incomplete of who God is. So how do we speak the truth in love? Number one is that we don't shy away from the truth, even if it hurts, even if it hurts us or somebody else. But we do it in a way that shows the goodness of God, not the judgmental side of us that wants to come out. Not the judgmental side. But let's go deeper, since we're having a good feel-good sermon this morning. I want to touch it on you, on our level, on what we feel. I heard a father talking to his pastor that he had, he's raised three kids and now they're married and they're gone and and they're living their own life, but none of them go to church. They have successful jobs and they're doing well for themselves, but the one thing that they lack is a relationship with Jesus. And now the father sits back and says, Where did I go wrong? Did I do anything wrong? Was I there enough? Did I miss something? Or I think about a woman. A wife who, who has been there for all of her friends and during their pregnancies and all the good stuff that's happening to them for the celebration of life and yet there she is struggling to carry a baby full term. I know parents who have prayed for a child and they ended up having one but only to lose that child to drugs. I know of a couple who was looking forward to their retirement and they were getting excited to, to, to go off and to adventure and to uh, maybe go to Hawaii and just have their own time and instead that money's having to be used for treatment for cancer. I think about a teenager who, who, who feels like he or she can't fit in. They're being told different things every single day that just continuously push them down farther, farther, and farther. And now they believe the lies that they're being told and now their identity is completely gone to the point to where all they can think about is suicide. Emotions are tied to doubt more than what we know. And here's the thing is we have that thing that I was just talking about. We have the thing that hurts us. We have the thing in our life that doesn't make us feel very good. And a matter of fact, it not only makes us have bad feelings, but it leads us into a deep, deep, dark state that we feel like we're just sticking our head in the sand and we have nowhere else to go. And so we try and we try and we try and then it just continuously puts us down and we keep having more uh, realizations that this is just how life is. And now when we were trying to be a good person, maybe even a good Christian, a good father, a good mother, husband, son, whatever it is, now we don't want to try because what's the point? I don't feel very good today. Why try? I don't feel like this is good for me, which leads us into this idea of what devastated dreams bring us. Devastated dreams bring us into brokenness. And we lead these devastated dreams and and, and they lead us through doubt. They lead us into questions. And so now we're questioning on the goodness of God and we're questioning the goodness of our own life to where we want nothing to do with it and we're done. And And if we focus on our feelings and our emotions, it's only gonna lead us deeper and deeper. Because remember, feelings will lie. Feelings will lie. You see, if you start feeling that way, I want you to understand, you're not the first one. See, Karen talked about the great cloud of witnesses. In the chapter before that verse, if you read it, it's the whole story. It's like a whole lineage of people before us. You have people like Abraham, Moses, and Noah, and David, and Daniel. All these people who who you would consider pillars of the faith. People who went through the hard times, had their own deep, dark states, and came out on the other side. And so when we read about the great cloud of witnesses, he's referring back to the people who have came out on the other side. He's referring back to the people who went through their deep, dark states. And if you want to go through all those, it's a really interesting study. Think about David by itself and all the times that he messed up, and yet his name was on that list of witnesses. So now my question is, before we dig into this, is do you want your name to be on that same list if we have one today? Do you want to be part of the people who came through out on the other side and said, I went through it, and I'm better because of it? Because remember, we can't prevent bad things from happening, but we can prevent our mentality after that. How do you want to deal with it? See, we're going to go through the life of Jeremiah. And if you want a feel-good book, don't read it. He's known as the weeping prophet. Do I need to go deeper into why you shouldn't be happy when you read this one? Like, there's great stuff. We're gonna read, like, there's fantastic stuff, but he's called the weeping prophet for a reason, and we're gonna find that out. Okay? So here in the life of Jeremiah, starting with verse four, we have this. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God is telling Jeremiah, this is your moment. You see, that's how they talked back then, we're prophets. So God would take a certain person, they would be the mouthpiece for God to the people. And now Jeremiah is getting that call. He is saying, I knew you before you were were born, I made you, you're gonna be my peace. Let's keep reading. Verse six, alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak, I am too young. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Did anybody know who else said that? God named Moses. Isn't it weird how God uses the people who feel like they're not good enough to do his biggest work? Just a quick youth ministry input right there. Let's pay attention to the little stuff. Verse 7. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am too young. You must go to everyone I send to you or send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See today, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. He is basically saying, if I could summarize, you are going to do whatever I tell you to do. Good or bad, build up, tear down. Your job is to say exactly what I say to you. Now, initially you can imagine Jeremiah's like, well, let's do it. That sounds great. Until you hear the message he has to tell the people. See, that brings us to the very first part is the burden of an unpopular message. The burden of an unpopular message. You see, Jeremiah was chosen by God to talk for him. But if you read it, whenever we're getting ready to read this here in chapter 19, you see that the message he's getting ready to bring is not the best. Can you show up that picture for me? Does anybody know what this picture's from for me? Can anybody tell me what it shows that from? The office. And the idea on the office here is that they are at a dump looking for something. And if you can look, the whole, it's, it's a huge garbage field. Now in Jeremiah, and you just leave this up for me. In Jeremiah, he is called to go to this place called Ben Hanan, which is the town dump, which is the trash place. It's also, if you, if you read the book of Isaiah, the same place is called the Pyre of Fire, which if that's a band name, I call dibs. <laughs> but the, he's called to take the elders of the church, the leaders of the church that he's going to talk to, and they have to go to this place right here. And they have to go to Ben Hanan, and they have to basically lay down the judgment. So much so that the people were also known to offer sacrifices at the same place. Jewish legend also says that this was the mouth of hell. You wanna keep going? Have you ever heard of the word Gehenna? Gehenna is the word that Jesus used and he's referring to ben Hanab. And that, that's in, uh, in Mark here in uh, verse 9, or chapter nine, verses 40 through 48 where it says, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. That's talking about Hanab. The fires are always burning because that's how they got rid of the trash. So whenever Jesus would use the word Gehenna, he says that it is better for you to take out your eye or to cut off an appendage than it is to have to live in a place like that referring to hell. Super duper exciting for Jeremiah to take a group of leaders up to and say, hey, I'm gonna lay down the judgment for you, right? So you know he was excited at this point. I'm kidding. But he was obviously probably a little bit nervous here, but he has one job. Say exactly what God wants you to. So uh, uh, can you imagine like how awkward it is like the walk up? Like, hey, man, we're going to go on a trip. I got a word from God. And they're like, okay, well, let's go. Where are we going? Don't worry about it. I'll show you in a second. So then they're walking up there. But then we read this in Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 10 through 11. And this is like the call. Like this is the moment that, that Jeremiah is saying exactly what God wanted him to say. Then break the jar, meaning a little clay jar, while those who go with you are watching. And say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation... And the city, just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired, they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Want more? Let's read verse 15. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Listen, I am going to bring on this city and all the villages around it disaster that I pronounced against them because they were stiff-necked and would not listen to my words. What about a good news story today? Jeremiah basically brings these people up to the mouth of hell and says, God's going to destroy you. And I'm sure they took it really well. I'm sure they were excited to hear that. But Jeremiah was burdened with this unpopular message. And unfortunately, we kind of have a similar thing today. I mean, I I don't, I don't think I need to tell you, but if you turn on any kind of social media or news, the world seems to be crumbling. But if I can offer a little bit of encouragement there, too, that's how it's supposed to happen. So whenever you start getting discouraged and saying, man, everything's going down, guess who comes back when it does happen? So whenever you start seeing this burden of an unpopular message, I want you to understand that there, we, we call the scripture good news. Say good news. Good news is supposed to be the good stuff. The stuff that feels really good and makes us happy. But unfortunately, what becomes good news is actually bad news for the people who don't believe it's good news. And that's hard to hear. When you think about the people who are closest to you, you really had to have a conversation when they ask, what's gonna happen after I die. But instead of seeing it as a discouragement to what could happen, you tell them what will happen if they follow Christ. But in a world Right now, where the good news doesn't seem very good to people, we have an unpopular message that's not being heard. If you were to go out to somebody, I was talking to somebody after the first service who said that very thing, that they were trying to talk to somebody about God, and this is like during a cell, like he was trying to sell something, the person got up and walked out. Don't be surprised if that happens. Because people don't want to believe the good stuff. In Scripture, it says that their itching ears will hear what they want to hear, which means that they don't want to hear certain things. So whenever we start to get discouraged with what the good news actually is, we have to understand that we have a task. We have a job. We have something that we have to do, and that's to stand up and stand out, even when it's unfavorable. Now, I do believe that there is a line and that, that, that how we discuss this whole thing, speak truth in love, that we have to walk wrong. You don't just go up to somebody and say they're going to hell. That's not going to work. I promise you, 100%. You build a relationship to show them that Jesus is more than that. Jesus is bigger than that. And show them not only where our life, where we have messed up as Christians, where we still struggle, but say, but I believe in something bigger than myself and that's where my hope lives. The unpopular message is only unpopular because of the way it's been presented for so long. But what's supposed to be exciting is what's the hope for the future. The burden of an unpopular message. There's stuff people don't want to hear. Number two, the response of a sinful generation. You see, one of my favorite things to think about is like when I read a Bible story, I like to like think of it in just different ways, like just put on a different pair of glasses and see what happens. So I think about Abraham and Isaac whenever he was getting ready to sacrifice him on the altar. So the first thought is, imagine walking up to that moment and then I'd be like, hey, where's the cow? Where's the goat? Where's the ram? What are we going to sacrifice? And Abraham just kind of like looking like, We'll talk about it later. And then he gets up there and he's like, hey, why don't you just go ahead and get on? Get on what? Okay, so then God intervenes, the ram comes, and it's an act of faith. But what about the walk down? You see what I'm saying? Like, I I wonder I wonder if it took like a couple hundred yards for Isaac to look and be like, you want to tell me what that was about? And I think the exact same thing happened with Jeremiah and these leaders, Like, he gets up there, he's like, this is not going to be a fun conversation to have. And he was right. So then the the leaders of the town hear this. And on the way down, like, there's like that awkward silence whenever you're fighting with your spouse in the car, and you have like two more hours in the car, and there's nothing going on. Like, what do you want to listen to? Not you. Like, that kind of conversation. Everybody has it, okay? Let's not pretend. But that's like that kind of awkward silence. So you know that the leaders of the town took it really, really well back to the people, Right? No. Okay, let's read verse 20, starting with verse 1. When the priest Peshur, son of Ammar, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, the head of the temple, the worship place, okay, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. Turned out well for Jeremiah. He did exactly what God wanted him to do, right? And now he's getting the snot beat out of him by a bunch of people he doesn't know. This is that they beat him and they put him in, in, in basically in chains and they stuck him out in front of everybody to see. Now, if I understood this right, the Jewish law said that you couldn't kill somebody like that, but you could basically do whatever you wanted. If you wanted to launch like a little rock at him, go for it. If you wanted to spit on him, you can. Insults, whatever else. So Jeremiah did exactly what God wanted, to do, wanted him to do. And here he is locked up, beaten to half to death. And he is having this moment of, what do I do? And now that deep, dark pit that I was talking about, Jeremiah's in. Jeremiah's in himself. And so he kind of has this moment with God, this moment, and we we find it starting with verse 7. And this is Jeremiah to God. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. Bold prayer by a prophet. You lied to me, and I believed it. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long and everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So what that says is, is while he's being chained and shackled, he's continuing to say, no, 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 you're not hearing me. This is from God. And then they just pick up a boulder and throw it at him, okay? So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach. What you have told me to do is just causing me more pain. Why, why? So then it goes on. But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire uh, shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I can not. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying perhaps he will be deceived and then we will prevail over him and take revenge on him. He is basically saying, I don't want to say what you want me to say anymore, and I'm trying not to, but it's a fire burning inside of me that I can't get out until I say what you want me to say. And he's saying that his friends are waiting for the moment that he denounces God, and then they can all denounce God together, and Jeremiah continues to stay strong, even though he says, you lied to me, and I believed you. You deceived me, and I was deceived. But yet, I don't want to say it, but I can't stop saying it. Because the word of God can always prevail in your life. The word of God. And we try over and over again. And yet Jeremiah refuses. He stood up and he stood out. He knew that there was more to the story, even though he didn't want to anymore. But let's see another thing of Jeremiah's response. Cursed be the day that I was born. Again, wait for this one happy. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news who made him very glad saying, a child is born to you a son. Not only do I hate my life, I wish my parents hated their life because of me. Weeping prophet. Now we get it. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a battle cry at noon, for he did not kill me in the womb. With my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Weeping prophet. Take my birthday and cry on it. Whatever day you think was good about me, I don't want you to remember it. Matter of fact, curse be the people who do. Like, imagine, like, if Jeremiah's dad's listening to this, and he's like, my gosh, what happened, bud? You want to go throw a baseball? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like like, come here, you need a hug, Jeremiah. But the people didn't accept what God wanted him to do, and now he's in the deepest and darkest pit because of it. And I think we can relate to that. He has dedicated his life to a moment like that, and now he's completely by himself being spit on, rocks thrown at him, completely alone. Have you ever felt that? Where it seems like you did exactly what you thought you should do, and now you're only getting pushed down deeper into the dark pit that you were trying to get out of. Maybe it took everything in you just to get out to do the said thing, and now you're like, well, I, I don't even have God. I don't even have him on my side, it feels like. And I'm here to tell you, you're not alone. Jeremiah wanted more than anything in his world to act on feelings and emotions. He wanted to stop saying what God wanted him to say, but it said that it was a fire inside of him that he couldn't shut up. And it kept coming out more and more every single day. But I skipped over a couple verses. Let's go back to those. And this is the in-between of him saying, you deceived me and I lied, and cursed be the day that I was ever existing, okay? But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, you examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind. Let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. Verse 13, sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the wicked, I mean from the hands of the wicked. So you know what that tells me? You can struggle and have doubts and be in the deepest and darkest pit of your life and still believe that God is there, even if you don't feel it. You can be the most broken you have ever felt in your life. Maybe you are figuratively getting spit on, rocks thrown at you, completely alone, chained up, and still say things that you don't necessarily believe about God because he's good even when we don't feel it. He's there even when we don't see it. And Jeremiah, in the middle of his anguish and depression and complete existence, he is saying, cursed be the day I was existing. You lied to me. But in between it, the Lord is there. Blessed be God. Praise be to God. And that's crazy to think about. But when you act on feelings that are negative, you can tell yourself all the negative things. And you'll believe them. Which leads us to our last one. The turmoil of a believer's heart. As much as the deep, dark pit of depression, of devastated dreams from your devastated dreams can lead you to, they're not meant to just break you up of everything. They're meant to bring you to your knees. You see, the turmoil from devastated dreams can lead you into doubt. You can't stop that. You can't. Doubt will happen. But it should also drive us to your knees. Doubt, as we have talked about, will exist. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament where a father is completely distraught, We don't know if he's a believer. I mean, he obviously knows who Jesus is because he goes up to Jesus and he's saying, heal my child, heal my child. And Jesus says, you're here. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. It's kind of an oxymoron, right? I believe, help my unbelief. I'm struggling to believe what it is that I know I need to believe, but I have no other options. I have nothing else left. And God will always show up maybe not in the way you think maybe not in the timing that you want maybe not even in the way you want but he shows up and your heart can lead you to god it can also lead you astray don't filter your your thoughts and your mind through feelings filter them through scripture through god's word through what he says the band's gonna come up and I just wanna close with this, with this uh, verse that we've already read, but I wanna end it with it. It's in Psalms 34, verses 17 through 18. It says this. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all of their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in the spirit. Whenever you're at your weakest, God's just getting started in your life because you have pushed aside your pride You have pushed aside your arrogance. We have pushed aside our our nest, who we are. And he says, now we can get started because you're not relying on you, you're relying on me. I don't know who's in that pit today. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what kind of hardships we face, but I know that I see them. I know that I see it. I know that I, I deal with it myself. But I'm here to tell you, you're not alone. You can't stop your dream from becoming devastated. You can't stop your doubts from coming into your mind. But what you can control is how you view them. And if you tell yourself that this is the end-all, be-all, that you just got hit in the face with a football kind of situation, your life will be acting at half percent. Because God wants to show you that he is good even when he doesn't, even when it doesn't feel like he is. He's there when it seems like you're alone. He wants you to know that I love you exactly the amount that I would if you messed up or if you were trying to be perfect. I love you exactly where you are, for who you are, for what you are. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. For another chance for us is to get up, to come worship together like a great cloud of witnesses. God, if there's ever moments in our life where we are acting on our strength, God, bring us to our knees. And that's a hard, uncomfortable prayer for me to make because usually when we're on our knees, that means we're at our bottom. That means we're at the lowest. God, let us rely on you when it seems like we're completely alone, when it seems like we have nothing else left, when it feels like, like we're, we're, we're just trying to keep our head above water and we can't swim, God, allow us to be like Peter and we just look up and there you are. God, help us in the moments where we feel like our doubt is overwhelming us, is that we, we realize that our doubt is meant to bring us closer to you. Having questions, having doubts, having maybe even negative thoughts Those don't make you a bad person or a bad Christian. But God, we can't stay that way because then those things will dwell inside of us and then we'll start believing the lies that are being told to us. God, let our questions and our doubts and our fears pull us closer to you to say, I don't understand, but I serve someone who does. Help us to start today to change our mindset, to fix ourselves, to fix our hearts. Because as much as we want to speak the truth in love, that means starting with us too. That means taking the plank out of our own eye before we could look at somebody else and say that they have a speck. Father, thank you for a church that allows us to speak the truth, to speak the truth in love the best that we can. And God, help us in those moments that we feel like we fail. In your name I pray, amen.